0: Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey there, it's Laura. Today, we talk to another podcaster about her book, No Less, which is all very meta and kind of basic sounding, except our guest is a very special person with a huge mission, and both her podcasts and her book are wonderful. Anna Sale is the creator of the Death, Sex, and Money podcast, you might have heard of it, and the author of Let's Talk About Hard Things, which is an invitation to discuss the tough topics that all of us encounter. The New Yorker said about her book that it's like a good conversation with a friend, and I totally agree. For those who haven't met her yet, Death, Sex, and Money is a podcast about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I love that. In her work, Anne has this calm, resolute quality that zeroes in on what matters and then the patience to let some magical moments rise to the surface. Saeed Jones captured the essence of Anna's gifts and work when he said, Anna has a real gift for cutting through the white noise that so often overwhelms our most urgent, high stakes conversations. She's teaching us how to listen to each other again. You might remember in our episode with Melissa Urban that she talked about how after going through a divorce, she decided that she'd be the one to go first to talk about the hard thing first, and publicly. Anna is definitely also one of those women. When she launched Death, Sex, and Money seven years ago, which by the way was way before podcasts were such a big thing, she had definitely made a decision to go first. I am excited for you to spend this time with her. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Anna. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you talk about your journey as a journalist and the this, this short version of how you ended up doing what you're doing today and what you're doing today?
1: Yeah, um, I, I started out as a journalist in a very sort of conventional newsroom sort of model covering the West Virginia State House uh, for public radio. That's where I trained and kind of pretty quickly focused on politics and worked in West Virginia and then Connecticut and then came to WNYC, who I still work for in New York. And you know, the thing that sort of motivated me in my politics reporting was really that kind of like mission-driven work of like, I'm gonna show up at the Capitol and I'm gonna tell the people who had other better things to do during the day, like what the people who they elected are doing on their behalf. And just really thinking about like (laughs) uh, being really clear and I never really got into like the the horse racy stuff or the backroom deals. That wasn't my strength. It was more just trying to explain the stakes of what was going on and why it was happening the way it was. And so in that way, I think of Mm -hmm. my work as sort of now, which is very much more about the emotional landscape of our lives it's sort of very similar to that of just trying to be like, I'm, I, no, I really want to tell personal stories where we actually talk about how things are and why in each of our cases they have unfolded the way they have and, and how we make sense of them. Yeah. But, you know, from an outward facing look, like my job looks really different now. Like my, the stories we make at on death, sex, and money are about, you know, the most personal things that we go through and struggle with when we started the show and kind of came up with the conceit of death, sex and money. It was like really just trying to be really clear that like, we're not going to skip over the stuff that's messy or taboo or uncomfortable, or that we don't have often readily available words for. Um, so that's what the show has been for seven years. And then I just, uh, wrote a book, didn't just write a book. I worked on a book for many years that just came out. Um, That's
0: right. Yeah. No, you cannot yeah,
1: I know that process. Books, woo, whoa, they are hard to do, but it tried to build on that work yeah. of saying like, instead of just being in, in, I think of the show as being so much about kind of witnessing, conversations about those hard moments in life. And the, the book called let's talk about hard things. I, I wanted to pull back a little bit and try to sort of reflect personally and also talk to other people about, you know, oh, how have these conversations unfolded in your life and, and when they have unfolded in an effective way that has made you feel closer or more connected or more clear. What is it about those kinds of hard conversations yep. that were successful? So to try to, just put to words what the process is.
0: Not a lot of people want to go there. So what was stirring up in you when you came up for the concepts of death, sex, and money?
1: There was a, a real personal engine along with a, a sort of intellectual curiosity. I mean, I think in my my work always, what I've loved about radio is that it's a It's journalism that's built on an interaction. Like that's what you're capturing. You're capturing tape of something happening. Mm -hmm. And and what happens in an interview when you connect with someone. Sometimes it, you know, you just run across, you know, in a parking lot, and now they're telling you something really nuanced about their life. Like that those are really I love those moments, and that's why I became a journalist. And but why I wanted to sort of really sort of hone in on the building blocks of our lives and what happens when the bottom falls out, to bring in another metaphor, like where you, when, when you lose the scaffolding that's been building up your life, what, where, what do you do? That was, that was happening in my life when I came up with the show Concept. I was in my early 30s. I got divorced when I was 30, to, from uh, my ex, we were, had been together throughout my 20s. I met him when I was in college and, and just sort of we, we launched into young adulthood together. And then we mm-hmm. got to that place uh, that some relationships end up where you realize, even though you've shared a lot and have a lot of fondness and have promised each other, you're going to be there with each other forever, that it, it wasn't working anymore. And it was yep. a real shock to both of us for me, it came with a lot of shame and feelings of failure. And I didn't really know, like, I, you know, I, I sort of consumed all the self-help books I could and did all the therapy that I could. I was, and I, but I was like looking for more, just like, I wanted more stories and more company about how to get through mm-hmm. and what to do next. I, I, I remember this feeling of feeling like I was a helium balloon that was floating above in a, an out-of-control way. I didn't know how to get my grounding back. And I remember, f- for me, feeling that mm-hmm. that was a really terrifying feeling. And so that was a real motivation for the work, was just like finding people who would share with me when they had felt a similar thing, and then to say, here's the yep. first thing I did, and then the next thing, and the next thing. And and to not tell stories where they were sort of simple. And then it all worked out stories, <laughs> you know, like I, I wanted to tell stories <laughs> you're right, you're right. that were messy and that showed that life is, a, is about trade-offs and times of ambivalence and, and you know, trying to show up for yourself and for others
0: the first line in your book is so great. It's, I might not get it exactly, but when I, at the age of 30, I, it was lost for words. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Words failed me. Yeah. Words failed me. I was like, I knew it was better than that. Words failed me. Yes. Well, cause it's both, it's like, I didn't have the words. And also like, I have this faith in my words. Like if I could Think about it hard enough. I could articulate the thing that was going to fix this impasse, you know? That's Mm -hmm. not what words can always do, though. (laughs) 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 I needed to learn. (laughs) Words don't always have that capability.
0: Information doesn't always do that. It's so funny because words are all we have. Language is all we have. And you talk about this, but they only ever touch on what is a, an ineffable experience of being alive. And so I see your project as trying to do that, trying to find the words, trying to, to gather the words through people's direct experience for something, for the things that we have the hardest time putting into words, mm-hmm. right? So this is a quote from the book. And it's you say, though we think of rebellion as warrior-like, is really about making the self vulnerable in a heavily armored world. Living a life where you where we talk about hard things is not like an, it's not an innate human. It's not how we're born. It's not certainly not how we're raised culturally. It's a set of skills. It's like a willingness and it takes it's a practice for sure. So what do you say to people? who you can tell want to open up and want to have conversations about hard things, but they just can't bring themselves to do it. What do you say to to that?
1: I I always think of first starting by modeling, you know, like rather than say, it's really important that you talk about your deepest pains and shames. (laughs) 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 Let me tell you, you need to be doing this. Um, I think it's more about, you know it can be so powerful to witness someone talk with self compassion around moments of you know mistakes or uncertainty and and that creates this safety a, a place of of being able to also say like oh i i screwed up in a similar way let me tell you my story you know one of the most important parts about creating the conditions for that kind of conversation to happen is to, is to sort of kind of like by modeling, like that here's the sort of values around how we're going to talk about this. Like we're going to come at it Mm -hmm. with a spirit of curiosity rather than righteousness or judgment. And also that a, a spirit of, of listening in a way that's like dignifying, you know, even when the, Content itself might yeah. not be dignified, like to just indicate yeah. that you mm-hmm. will be heard at the beginning of interviews on Death, Sex, and Money. For example, sometimes I find myself saying, like, you know, you've not heard about this show, maybe let me explain this, you know, very like body in your face <laughs> podcast title. Like, here's what we <laughs> are. Yeah. Uh, I might ask you All about right. some personal things. Here's why. Like, our show is built around this idea that um sharing around these things that 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 we think about a lot and need to talk about more that 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 creates community and and pulls us out of isolation there's this larger project that we yeah i sort of explain that so that it, later on 20 minutes in when i say like oh what what happened there like when did that relationship end it doesn't seem like i'm just like digging for tabloid fodder or I know something why. Just the way that you actively listen with someone can be the thing that, that makes someone comfortable sharing something they haven't before, you know, because they are feeling yeah. that feeling that feeling that's so rare of, of really being listened to.
0: Talking openly about the truth and what the possibilities are in that space is something I think about constantly is someone in recovery, and it is the central part of of recovery for me was learning to talk about the things I didn't think I could talk about. You could be in a room with strangers, right? All people who are suffering from addiction or have recovered and are still ta- you know willing to talk about it. You're all there for the same reason. You're all there for the same goal and you know where you're all coming from. Whereas in relationships in partnerships marriages you know parent child coworkers all the other types of relationships that we have where we don't necessarily have the same goals we definitely don't have the same level of experience we don't have a, a common denominator necessarily i'm just thinking that that makes it so much harder I'm wondering if you just have any thoughts about that. like Because you have to find that. You have to mm-hmm. find that, that place where you can meet yeah. someone, even if you've never experienced what they have before.
1: Yeah, you're actually making me think about, I have a friend who has been in recovery for a long time. And before I started this work, or before I started Death, Sex, and Money, when I was still a regular old politics reporter, um, I went to an anniversary meeting with her, and I'd never been in a recovery mm. meeting setting before. And, you know, I sat in the back and we watched people share share their stories. And I was overcome with just what that space was. You know, this was like a random basement mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. It yeah. was very early on in my time and living in New York City. And I don't know, my experience of living in New York City was that like I, I couldn't find any place where I felt like I could be not on guard and (laughs) like not put together and hustling all the time. And so then to find myself in this space where it was all about, you know, humbly like, and concretely describing struggle and mistakes Mm -hmm. and supporting each other through that was very powerful. And I remember when I was starting death, sex, and money, I was, that was one of the things that I thought about. I was like, how do you create an environment that has that feeling when you don't have the biographical detail that brings you together, you know, in a recovery meeting, you share that that you've had different, you know, struggles with addiction or substance use and abuse or like a Weight Watchers meeting. You're all gathered together talking about your relationship to food, for example, Or an evangelical church service. You're gathered together talking about your shared belief that you're all sort of fallen, um, flawed, sinful souls who need to be saved. And I've also found those experiences of being in those church services very moving. Like when you gather together around the stuff that's hard and admit that there's things that you have trouble with. And... I don't know that I have figured that out with with creating the space of that sex and money, but that was one I wanted it to feel like that. I wanted it to feel like this is a yeah. show I can press play on where I can just come as I am and I'm gonna like hear somebody sharing something that's probably a little bit messy. Maybe I'm going to have some feelings about the choices they made and wouldn't make the same choices, but they're going to make me reflect on my choices. And it's a, in a spirit that when we listen to each other, we're, you know, we're building an important sense of community and also helping each other. I do think that the recovery meeting model and what happens in those rooms, it, it's it's a, it's astounding. and And it's unlike any other I mean I made the comparison to weight watchers in church but I I it's also unlike any other social space I've ever been a, been witness to they're Agreed. so powerful
0: it was like relief to me was, because honesty feels like that I think it even when it's uncomfortable it does feel expansive and like relief what you're saying speaks to another thing that you touched on your book that I'd never thought about before which is, we don't have the, the structures, institutions that, where we would go, like a mm-hmm. church, or or a recovery meeting or, or whatever it is that were so built into our daily lives for so long. They're still there, as you say, but digitized and we're not connected to them in like a, a physical way, or that or we've just dropped out of institutions. Can you talk about that? Because it was yeah. so. It was like a whoa. Oh, that's right. No wonder it's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I you to know, navigate I think, certain things we don't exactly. Have, yeah, like
1: writing about talking about hard things. Um, I thought a lot about like first of all, like you know, what do you have to say about hard things that has not been said for you know millennia? Like <laughs> the, the 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 hard things have been around for a long time, and people have said a lot about them. But I, I do think that we're undergoing a, a, a pretty important societal shift in, in how we engage with hard things. And, and like you say, it's like, I don't see it as good or bad. I see it as just like, let's just like, look clearly at how the landscape is different. And then what that means about mm-hmm. how we as individuals have to engage with hard things. And, you know, you look at mistrust of institutions, whether they're religious organizations or government or, you know, our that joining spirit in a community to show up in a community hall to do something together, that has receded in American life. And what is on the march is people who self-report feeling lonely, feeling disconnected. And that's related to, you know, anxiety, depression, you know, the the, the epidemic of loneliness is something that has been talked about and is yeah. something that's this real and yeah, I think sure. what those two things have to do with one another is like hard things in our lives are not new that's not something that's happening for the first time but the way the places we have to go and what we have to do is less ritualized and the onus is more on each of our own shoulders to figure out where am I going to find support in this? So, so I think that difference just means like you do have to figure out how to talk about hard things living in this world right now, because the onus is on us more as individuals to figure out for ourselves and to help people in our lives. You know, like I, I, I don't think my parents had similar conversations with their fellow peers with young kids of like, how the hell are you paying for childcare? What are the ways that you're putting this together with scotch tape? And how are you also saving for college? And how like the the things that like we ha- I have to figure out as a young parent right now, and how that overlaps with money like, and oh, my retirement account is in this weird account that somebody manages over here. I don't have a pension, but it, it's like also diffuse. And the only common denominator is I've got a deal. I don't have a banker. Like my parents had a banker. Like what? <laughs> you know? Um, so, so that's another way we've changed. We have to figure out how to talk about money and how are we going to, you know, share around that in a, in a more sort of comfortable way to help each other cuz cuz we're being tasked with figuring out some pretty yeah. complicated things.
0: It's like when you're swimming in an ideology and you don't realize you're swimming in it and and that say ideology or that system is making life more difficult than than it maybe used to be or that you even realize it it to name it and to say oh yeah that's a, an actual thing is so helpful.
1: To yeah. Me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not just you you that's having a hard time. It's like, oh, there are these historical phenomena that have led, conspired to make this hard for me. It's not my personal failing that I'm having a hard time figuring out how to make this work.
2: Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy, and we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks.
0: Melissa Urban, uh, I don't know if you know her, she's the CEO of Whole30, mm-hmm. and she's a big vocal person about, about a lot of things. She's a recovering addict. She talks openly about trauma and her own trauma, and she's, I would say, borders on sort of an activist. I had her on recently, and she was really passionate about, about the power of going first, being mm. the first one, r- raising your hand to talk about the hard thing. Like, okay, I'll do it. When she got divorced, she got to a place where she was like made a commitment to to I'm going to be the one to talk about hard things mm-hmm. that I've gone through and I'm going to go first. So you've been open about your own divorce, about the path you traveled with your feelings about money specifically. What did you learn sharing about those things? Because I read your pieces about money and going into your second marriage. And I don't, I'd never really seen anyone go into it like that. It was so refreshing. Oh, good. (laughs) I mean,
1: I, there's part of me that I'm like, oh, the parts of me that seize up around money, I find just like so embarrassing. Mm -hmm. It's just like, so like, come on, Anna, like evolve. And, and I, I, Evolve. i um, slowly but surely. I'm like seizing up a little bit less around around money. But I. That's just. It's part of my makeup that I have. When I go into catastrophic thinking, I it takes the form of money, and it takes the form of like mm-hmm. you shouldn't have done this thing that you knew was gonna was irresponsible. You should have just been shoveling money away in savings, and that's the way you stay safe, and that's the way that you never have a hard mm-hmm. thing, bad thing happen to you. You just squirrel away money and don't take risks. And that's not a very healthy relationship. But you also know like, okay, I'll, I'll let you continue. I just want, I
0: want to affirm like, no, my God's don't, don't feel bad because I know you're not Well, the reason I, it was, it was so, I don't I, Yeah, just go ahead.
1: Okay, well, well, no, tell me your read. I want to know. I want to know what you were going to say there.
0: I, I don't have this similar thing around money. Mine looks mm-hmm. different. But I had a lot of shame around money. I was in a really, really, really bad financial spot after my divorce. And because that was also coincided with like the worst of my addiction. And it was something I just thought I would never get out of. And I'm actually writing about it as part of my my book right now, because it is so profound. It was like the thing I couldn't, I would have rather talked about my drinking,
2: mm-hmm. which
0: was were some really shameful stories than money. It was like, I couldn't even bring it out of my mouth because there was so much there. It, it was so layered. And I know it's like that. I know it's like that for a lot of people. The thing that I loved the most was you start, one of your essays with saying like, when my, he's your husband now, but when you first met him, he said, he might need help around managing his money and that you were like repulsed by it.
1: Yeah. Isn't that not a very loving statement?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was, I kind of
1: threw up a little bit in my mouth. I was like, don't tell me that. That is, I I can't, I can't take that on. You're hitting my triggers. Yeah. I mean, I like, uh, What was it like for me to talk about money? I, I like, it's just, to me, it's embarrassing, but also I find, I find money stories so endlessly fascinating because you can be both the level of concreteness is like so available to you. It just is about how, how brave you're going to be, you know, Mm -hmm. and also Mm -hmm. like, all of us are doing this thing with these numbers and bills and checks and, you know, payments, online payments. Like we're all participating in this thing that we don't ever talk about. And it's a, and it touches on so much. It touches on our feelings of vulnerability and survival and ability to trust and, and be vulnerable with somebody else and, and, interdependence and our feelings of what, what is worthiness and values. So, so I wanted to like explore that in some of the memoir pieces of my book, because I do like, when you hear that somebody's marriage unraveled, you know, you're sort of like, oh, I wonder if it was infidelity or money or, you know, Mm -hmm. there's like these big ideas that we, (laughs) there was like big buckets, which kind of divorce was it? Did somebody come out, you know? But in mine, it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I guess mine fits in the money bucket. But that seems so just like doesn't capture it, you know? So I wanted to just like tease that out of like, what really was this about? Because I didn't understand at the time. Surprised me when it unfolded the way it did. So I, I wanted the money chapter in the book to sort of somehow... Contain all of that, that like when you're talking about money, you're not just talking about what personal finance choice should we make, you know, to spend or save or invest, etc. You're also talking about these deep, deep cultural beliefs that come from our families of origin that, that are related to trauma. Yeah. And once yeah, I leave
0: that out. I leave out because <laughs> I am. Um, but, but like, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's not that different from sex in a way. Like the way you you talk about sex, in, and I I wouldn't have thought of it this way. But it it's about kind of control and wants yeah. and yeah. Are you willing to do this when you're talking about in relationship with someone right are you willing to do this is this what you want no okay what do you want there's it's yeah. it's the, as much of a dance and as intimate in a way as as sex
1: yeah if i do this for you will you do this for me
0: but yeah it's very very
1: similar yeah. thing. of kind of negotiations <laughs> that happen yeah and i think that it is with money that idea of like going first That can be really powerful because then it can be like, oh, you know, I don't know. I I love those pre-pandemic times of when when I could sit around a table with colleagues and like we would be talking about work and then someone would be like, Oh God. Yeah. They didn't give me a raise until I did this. And then it was like, Oh, we're really going to talk about this, you know, like when the conversation turns (laughs) and, and it is really, it's so generous to be that one person who's like, okay, if you all are curious, I'll tell you how how this happened, you know? And of course everyone's like, yes, please tell us, you know, of course that, that creates, you, you need the right conditions for that of, of trust and, and context and, Knowing that you're in a space where you feel comfortable sharing more specifically, but I think that is—it's so generous to say, um, "I'll tell you some of my mess," you know, or some of some of the how this actually went down. And I—I I just want yeah. to say when you when you mentioned the the shame about divorce, it made me think about—that's something I really felt a lot, and then some, and something that speaking of words, one word that really helped me was I decided to really embrace self-identifying as a divorcee because I thought it made me seem interesting Ooh. and sexy and like complicated and a way. Oh cool yeah, I way. did that too. <laughs> so I feel like <laughs> for anyone listening who is in that phase of emerging from a marriage that ended, just think about, can you be a divorcee? Does that make you like want to go to Miami, you know, and like have a trip with your girlfriends and celebrate? <laughs> you,
0: know? <laughs> you know, I've embraced almost all the negative, supposedly negative or subversive labels as that. I just like it. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I've had a, I'm su- I don't call myself an alcoholic because I, it's like way too, sound- it se- feels too punitive to me, but like, yeah, I, I, struggled with addiction and I'm a divorcee and I think, I think it's a good, if we, if we just gave one person that permission, that's awesome because I think it, it feels very different. Like, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: yeah, it does make you interesting. Your holes are interesting as Augustine Burroughs says. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What have you seen that's like a shared trait or I don't know, skill or competency with people who are willing to have hard conversations?
1: Hmm. It's interesting to think about that because I've, you know, I've had, I've had these kinds of conversations with so many different sorts of people. Mm -hmm. There's a quote that comes to mind. Nadia Boltz Weber says that you, when, when you are talking about hard things, you want to talk about them from scars and not wounds. And what she means by that is like, you know, after just that first layer of scabbing over has happened if you're if you're doing like sort of sharing um, in a sort of vulnerable way, you know you can talk from wounds. If you're in a you know therapeutic environment, of course you can reach out if you're in crisis. But but in that kind of like sharing socially, you know. And I, I think mm-hmm. that those scabs can take a lot of different forms. Like for example, somebody who like who has embraced divorce of like, oh, now I'm integrating this fact into my identity. I'm I'm not shying away from that. And so now that, that I've integrated this the fact that I had a marriage and didn't divorce, I'm gonna tell you about it. Here's what I learned. I'm gonna share. And I actually learned some things that, you know, are like I think that's a, a trait of of people who are comfortable talking about hard things is that they have seen the value of what can happen when you when you allow that in to who you are and share it with others you give other yep. people permission to allow in things yep. facts about their lives that maybe they're not they've struggled to face yeah. or you know are deep in grief around for example you know I, I think about a friend of mine who i write about in the book who she had a stillbirth and you know that there's so many strange absent social conventions for grief around a pregnancy that ends that way. There's no mourning rituals. And she was just like, I don't, I'm just going to tell people that I'm sad. I'm going to cry in public. When tears come, I'm going to cry. I'm going to, every year on the anniversary of my son's birth and death, I'm going to mark it. And it's going to be, it might make some people feel creeped out, but like, that's what I need to do. And her doing that has, you know, she's become a place where people who are facing pregnancy loss in, in, in all its forms, they know she's there to talk to you about it. So right. what else? You know, I also just think a sense of humor and like hu- humility is a really, you know, it's easier to talk about hard things and places in your life that are a little tender when you ha- have that ability to be like, yeah, yeah, that's a part of me too.
0: <laughs> that happened. <laughs> yes, that happened. It's true. Mm-hmm. In my experience, people the 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 thing that keeps them from sharing is shame, almost always. Mm-hmm. Shame and probably fear. Second, of like, what's going to happen if I do? You know, I'll lose all my attachments or whatever. And, and then ironically, of course, sharing is what helps relieve shame when it's received in a safe place. And so it's this interesting tension between that. I have always found, though, that it takes a moment of kind of jumping off a cliff, like, okay, you mm-hmm. actually, I, I listened to your interview with Ezra Klein. You were saying in your conversations, you kind of imagine that you're at the top of a deep hole or a well, and you're going to go like splunking together. going mm-hmm. <laughs> to drop yeah. down and see what's in there. I thought that was a really good way to put it.
1: Yeah. There is that, like, well, because you're going into a different mode, it's like, what's going to happen when I say this, you know? And you don't know. Yeah. And it could be really powerful connection, and it could be disruptive. Right. Disruptive in a way that's as an outcome maybe you didn't want, but you are – you are stepping towards truth, you know, like there's there's more truth there than there was before. And I was before, right. I think of it as sort of like that moment, like maybe before you can talk about hard things, you have to have that moment of like crumple, you know, like crumpling up and like, just like, maybe Mm -hmm. it's something, a fact uh, that you've, I'll use the, the example of my divorce. I can remember coming home from a night out, right when my, when that marriage was ending and, and a friend of mine, we shared a cab back to Brooklyn and we got out and he could tell I was a little like shaky. And he's like, we sat on the stoop and he gave mm. me a cigarette and I just like sobbed. And I, mm-hmm. I think about, I, I, you know, we talk about that the night that he was my angel, my little cigarette angel, you know, cause you need to have that, that time of like letting in, because so much of hard stuff is like i'm just going to i'm just going to pretend this is not happening and going to just <laughs> be numb to it and denial so i think that's sort of like just letting yourself have it wash over you is maybe part of letting in that shame you know and all the feelings that it brings up shame is a big i just shame yeah. is a big thing It's such a, so much it contains, that word. It shows up in so many ways.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's a reason Brene Brown has (laughs) dedicated her whole field of study, her whole career, really, to to studying it. There is so much there. And it was, my experience was kind of always being slightly ashamed of myself Mm -hmm. and who I was before I even had any reason to and then you know I created re- real reasons to and and yeah so I think it's a it's an interesting phenomenon that I study a decent amount of Buddhism and one of the things that Pema Chodron comments on a lot she always comments that it's a phenomenon of the Western world primarily that she would say people in say Tibet when these teachings was, would be brought to them, would be so confused at the level to which we could beat the shit out of ourselves. Hmm. Uh, so to me that's, it's heartening in the sense that, or it's helpful in the sense that like what you were, when I asked you to talk about the lack of institutions and, and sort of help in processing things, it's similar to that. It's like, oh, oh that's a thing. It's a thing we do that has a name and, it's, and it's, it's a phenomenon of our culture. So maybe mm. I can choose to, to sort of extract myself from it. It's just not, it's not just the way. It's not just the part, just who I am. It's not the truth.
1: Yeah. And and the other thing that I think that shame, like you, you feel the feeling before you understand why. And so you sort of have to name that you're mm-hmm. feeling ashamed to then go like, wait, I'm feeling ashamed because of this set of societal conventions and beliefs like, wait, I don't buy those. <laughs> you know, you have to like name the shame to yeah, get back to the thing right. to be like, hang on, that's bullshit. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't yeah. need that, you know, like, or I don't believe that. Yep. And then you can sort of build back this other way of sort of talking back to your shame it doesn't make the shame go away, but like, you can talk back to it.
0: So I guess I'm curious about how things have changed for you since what is 2014, since you started the show, how has it changed you to have these conversations, to do this work with these people? How's that reflected in your own life?
1: Oh, my life is so different now than it was in 2014 when the show started. And I think in large part, because mm-hmm. of the work on the show, you know, over the course of seven years, I got married to Arthur, my husband, and we've had two kids, and we moved across the country to California and mm-hmm. we bought an expensive fixer upper, which I still which I still feel a lot of anxiety around. it's just bottomless pit of money. Um,
0: <laughs> yes, naturally.
1: Thinking about the world in 2014, there was a lot of suffering and bad stuff going on, but it, it kind of feels quaint compared to now. I think interviewing people and talking with people about like what is happening in their lives now and what led to what's happening in their lives now, the history that of leading to that. Like it's, it's been this like really mm-hmm. cool thing to have that, like working when you talk to people and you're always kind of tracking the narrative arc and then you can call them back in two years and uh-huh. you can see how the arc has changed when you're making stories mm-hmm. all the time where there aren't like tied up endings it has made me be so much more able to recognize like, oh, I'm in this time of life is like really tough. And I, but I'm in this season of X, you know, it's not just that life is really hard, you know, it's like this faith of just the way that time, it doesn't necessarily make things better or worse, but it changes things. And that can be a comfort (laughs) to just, uh, and allow me to sort of yeah. keep focused on you know just like narrow the, the the frame of of the the sets of my anxieties you know to just try to be like more in the moment and you know the other thing that's helped with that is is having little kids like they you know they make you be very mm. responsive to immediate needs <laughs> so
0: yes I, they do I think that the other
1: thing that the, I think one way I have evolved as an interviewer, I hope, and continue to think about a lot is like, just like what kinds of conversations I have and lead as an interviewer. And I'm, I'm continually kind of becoming more thinking more about what it means when the conversation is led by me and this, that that's a specific encounter yeah. Um, And what I mean by that is like just being clear about like my orientation in an interview when it comes to the facts of my identity and the facts of where I've come from and how that lines up or doesn't with the person I'm talking to and how that creates whatever is happening in that moment. And so I think that there's ways that I try to be more sort of just like name that as an interviewer um, now than maybe... In 2014, when I was starting thinking about like, oh, let's just share, you know, (laughs) like, um, yes, let's share Yeah. now, I think. But like, also, let's be real about like what I think you can intuit about my experience and what I think you can't like where we where we're different, you know, and let's talk about that.
0: Interesting. So. What would be an example of that? Because, like, I think I know what you mean because of how the world has changed since 2014. But what would be an example of that? I, th- I want to ask because I think it's helpful for people just in their everyday context.
1: Yeah. I don't think it's that the world has changed necessarily since 2014. It's that like I, as a white woman have changed and I'm seeing things more clearly in the world that have been there a long time <laughs> to, to be really yeah. clear. Like I had a wonderful conversation with Claudia Rankin, the incredible poet. this an episode that came out earlier this year on her mm-hmm. show. And it was one of those interviews where she, she had, just come out with this this incredible book called Just Us. She'd done interviews all over the place, and I was like catching her in her book tour, and I'm like, oh, like this, you know, she's been talking about this book. How do I make this conversation feel different? And and it really was different because it was like it w- it it was about kind of like describing her, part of the, what she writes about in the book is calling upon herself to be brave and not socially lubricate moments where she felt particularly with white men where she would just kind of like prioritize their comfort. Instead, she would say like, Oh, I see that. I see, you You know, kind of call them out like an, an airport airplane lines, for example, mm-hmm. and what happened when airport those things happened. Yeah. So what was interesting about that conversation was like talking about our own you know, we have had different ways of like talking about race and, and the way if I express like, Oh, that's interesting. Will you tell me about that? How that's read differently than when she as a black woman says that to someone, Oh, that's interesting. Tell me about that. That can create defensiveness when she says it in a way where it can be like sort of charming and non-threatening coming from me um, depending on who we're, who we're talking to. So just those sorts of examples, I mean, Because I I think something that a way like I was not trained as a journalist uh, to think about that. Like, you know, I thought when I was at state houses covering politics, I was going out and I was going to tell the people what had happened. I was going to report back the truth. And now I'm more aware as a journalist and as an interviewer, I'm reporting back on the encounters that I had while I was out collecting stories
0: this feels dark to say but we've we've sort of been hinting at it a little bit it feels like it feels like as a society we're we're completely incapable of having the having public conversations about difficult topics and i don't know that that maybe we've never been able to and we're just seeing it now maybe the method in which we're trying to have them is completely incompatible with 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 actually having them and being successful like social media, not convinced it, that conversations can actually happen there. What is your sense? Have we become worse at it? Has it always been this bad? Are we just seeing it now? What, what is your sense?
1: I think it's like there, all of it. I think that there's, there's, there's forums that have become less able to contain conversation or that are just feel like more useless than ever. At like helping us connect and deal together. Like I think of when I say that, something like you know, cable news, for example. I don't feel like that's a place that is designed to like let's share and see each other. <laughs> you know, that's that's not the spirit behind cable news. And and mm-hmm. so, you know, if, if you're talking about like just the way our our you know largest media institutions are framing. Hard things and and how those stories get told, I, I don't think that's that's a place where it's happening effectively. The thing with social media, I feel like, yes, social media is a cause of a lot of the ways in that that these kinds of conversations have become kind of like more tribal and more like sharp and less. Mm capable of, of reaching consensus when you're talking across difference but at the same time it's also a place where you know I did an interview today like a woman who is, is struggling with, with sobriety and grief and the you know the real power that she of in connection she has felt through this one Facebook group of just like having a place to share um, mm-hmm. in her life has been really meaningful so I, I think you know, you can have these little micro environments where really important connections are happening and and hard things are being talked about. And I think that's something that podcasting has enabled, you know, whether it's for bigger podcasts that are creating sort of like creating a a demand and then filling a demand for sort of emotionally nuanced storytelling, or all the ways that podcasting is allowing people to find conversation that is maybe, you know, niche, but very much speaks to their particular identity or moment where they are, that's meaningful. Like people get something from listening to conversations like the ones you're having. So I feel Mm -hmm. like both things are getting worse and things are getting better. And so the the thing that I think about is like, okay, well, if like, just how am I participating in the parts that are getting better? You know, how am I trying to fortify yeah, the, the places that have the potential to help us even like volunteering for my kids preschool. So for their, like how they talk about like DEI and racism, like that's a way that I feel like I'm trying to be just fortifying our ability to have yeah. the vocabulary to do this together. But yeah. It feels like the immensity of the suffering, the scale of the suffering, all the different ways it's showing up. I don't know if it's worse, but it feels it feels really hard right now between the isolation and the grief and the loss because of the pandemic on top of ongoing inequality, the challenges of inequality. Yeah, I, uh, it, it, I, it feels very yeah. and climate like everything feels very big and hard we have to figure out how to be with each other as we confront all this stuff.
0: How do you do that in your own life? You're willingly putting yourself in these, in these conversations and you know, you're not necessarily experiencing the thing that the hardships and the pain and all of that yourself, but you do. Secondary experience is real when Mm -hmm. you are in a conversation with someone. How do you take care of yourself? How do you not fall into hopelessness? And despair, and maybe you sometimes do. What have you been doing in the past year to really help yourself? I will tell that? you. And help the people around you.
1: Yeah. One big life hack that I'm really leaning into right now is trying not to talk <laughs> <laughs> as much. Mm. And what I mean by that is like, yeah. I really am helped by going out on a walk and not immediately calling someone or firing up a podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm all for like digging in when the conversation comes up, but also like there there's something to be said for like giving yourself a little pause from the ticker tape mm-hmm. of talking and of inputs. and And I think that makes you a better talker that reactive kind of talking that's like basically like fueled by stimuli you know like it's not a sort of like deeper sharing you know or or a deeper listening because it's more sort of like frenetic i'm trying every day to take time for quiet and that sounds sort of like Mm -hmm isn't that nice? Anna's, Anna's doing self-care, but I, I actually am like realizing it, it's a matter of like, I have to for my mental health and to manage my anxiety. And I also am better at my work and I'm better in, in my life when I do that. Um, and I feel better. So it, so I should do yeah.
0: it. <laughs> but it can, it can it. be hard I don't to, think it's to step cute. away. Yeah. I don't think it's cute or yeah, I don't think it's cute or quaint, or I think it's actually sometimes difficult to be quiet. Well, you're just lovely. It's been so nice spending time with you, and I'm so glad I, I got to see the person behind the show, and I'm excited for people to hear more about your book and, and get it. How has how it the experience been of, of now publishing a book? Do you want to do it again?
1: the predominant emotion I have right now about book publishing is it feels really good to not have to write a book (laughs) I'm really glad that that's finished (laughs) for now
0: (laughs) Uh, yeah that'll go for a few years I would imagine (laughs) it is it's it's a whole thing it's hard it's like having a kid yeah it was a lot But
1: I'm really, it's so gratifying to hear, to talk with people about it, share this thing that was so much inside my own head for so many years to be able to talk about it is really nice.
0: All right, thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members only events and access to our members only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member, or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.